Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Thank you for joining us on today's show on Myeloma Crowd Radio. I'm your host, Jenny Elstrom. We'd like to thank Takeda Oncology for their sponsorship of this program. Now, fall is very busy. We have two upcoming meetings that I'd like to tell you about. The first is this Saturday in Columbus, Ohio, where three myeloma experts will join us. So if you're in the area, please um, take a look at our homepage and register for that. The second is on Tuesday, October 25th. Now, this is an online live session uh, with myeloma expert, Dr. Rafael Fonseca of the Mayo Clinic. And myself, we are joining Andrew Shore on Patient Power to talk about how patients can get their optimal outcomes by being advocates for themselves. So that is 6.30 p.m. Pacific time, and there will be a rebroadcast of that. So if you can't come in person to a session, you may want to consider um, watching a session like this. Now with us today is one of the foremost myeloma experts who leads cutting-edge myeloma research efforts internationally, Dr. Andre Jakubowiak. Um, so welcome, Dr. Jakubowiak. We're so happy um, you're here. Good morning. Good morning, and uh, I'm so honored to be part of uh, this effort and this broadcast, and happy to to talk to you. And it's always my favorite to uh, share my views and opinions with patients, which I understand is our audience. Yes, we are thrilled to, to have you. This is an opportunity for us to understand what's happening and what's the very latest in research uh, from experts, uh, exactly what they're working on, but in patient-friendly language. So we really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Let me give an introduction for you before we get started. Um, Dr. Andre Jakubowiak is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Multiple Myeloma Program at the University of Chicago, as well as a member the Executive Committee in the Section of Hematology Oncology and on the Clinical Trial Review Committee at its facility. He's co-lead in the Hematological Malignancies Working Group, also at the University of Chicago. He is a member of the Multiple Myeloma Research Consortium Project Review Committee and Steering Committee, as well as a member of the Alliance, which is CALGB, which designs myeloma clinical trials, and the International Myeloma Working Group, which helps define myeloma standards globally. Globally, Dr. Jack Boyack reviews articles and publications such as the British Journal of Hematology, Leukemia and Lymphoma, Blood, and the Journal of Clinical Oncology. He's received many awards, including the MMRS Myeloma Accelerator Award and Myeloma Center of the Year Award in 2008 and 2010. He's the first honorary member of the Polish Myeloma Group and was recognized as one of the best teachers in hematology and oncology by medical fellows. He's received distinguished honors from his home country of Poland in recognition of his major contribution, not only to myeloma in Poland, but in the world. Dr. Jakubowiak's primary research focus is the development of new drugs for the treatment of multiple myeloma. He's the lead investigator on a number of multi-site clinical trials for patients who are newly diagnosed, have relapsed, or have become refractory. 
And so we, we're thrilled that you're here. You're, I, I believe, one of the foremost experts, and uh, we have a lot to talk about. But maybe we want to talk about first um, about newly diagnosed myeloma and then kind of work our way through different stages of the disease because you've been working considerably to try to find out uh, what is the optimal induction therapy for myeloma patients. Um, so maybe we want to start with that. And it's one of those um, uh, probably most important emotionally charged uh, moments and questions which come to every patient with this diagnosis and physician talking to them. And I um, have to maybe uh, narrow it uh, down uh, by um, sharing a few points of uh, research um, which has been done in a few years, giving us some guidance um, what uh, we um, should be uh, using um, um, in initial treatment of myeloma. The first uh, important point is that uh, at this stage, uh, even if uh, disease may uh, create some uh, problems, including some organ uh, um, dysfunctions, uh, disease um, is most uh, sensitive to any therapy. And we have now um, uh, therapies which are uh, essentially 100% successful in reducing the disease by 50%. So this is great news for patients and for all of us. Um, we have uh, at least four or five um, uh, very good choices, um, potentially equivalent, as we cannot really say with certainty which one is better um, uh, from the other. Um, and, but I think I would like to maybe point what I think we all agreed right now is, number one, that initial treatment uh, with um, three-drug uh, combination has been consistently shown to produce superior outcome than two-drug combination. Uh, that's number one. And the, the most successful combinations were uh, combinations with uh, proteasome inhibitor and immunomodulatory drug. And in the United States, the most commonly used combination and with longest track record in this regard and first to hit 100% response rate was a combination on uh, as RVD, also sometimes called VRD, uh, for uh, Revlimid Velcade Dex, uh, and, um, actually uh, brand names or uh, generic names, Lenalonamide, Bortezomib um, um, Dex. Uh, that um, is uh, by no means, if I would discuss it with my patients, one of the top choices uh, currently in uh, newly diagnosed myeloma. Um, my um, Research uh, evolved from that uh, particular um, uh, combination um, power, if I may, and its uh, ability to achieve excellent responses and deep responses uh, by uh, making um, minor change together with my colleagues uh, to the combination and replacing bortezomib velcade with uh, carfilzomib or kyprolis and with combination initially known as CRD, now renamed as KRD for Kyprolis, uh, we found that it is um, uh, highly powerful, highly effective. We predicted that it may potentially produce deeper responses. And while a parallel study comparing KRD to uh, RVD have not been done, they are in progress or being planned, um, in direct comparison, uh, seems to favor uh, KRD, um, and that's something which 
eventually led uh, in my center and number of centers to selecting KRD versus RVD as top choice um, uh, with all reservations that we have uh, not enough data and there is a need for discussion about risks and benefits, um, uh, peripheral neuropathy and RVD, uh, very common. Uh, on the other hand, concern for cardiovascular and pulmonary toxicities, which are uh, much uh, less common uh, in RVD um, uh, associated with KRD. But then, in the end, uh, we have outstanding uh, results with KRD, and the tolerability of the regimen for most patients is is very good, with only mild uh, to at most moderate uh, toxicities. Uh, and and for my patient population, and that's how I would discuss it with you as well. Uh, with exception of very frail patients, um, that's my uh, top choice. I want to say that uh, uh, alternative choices uh, like uh, Cyborg-D uh, or VTD in Europe uh, are um, uh, reasonable, but uh, now in direct comparison, at least Cyborg-D is inferior than uh, construct with immunomodulatory drug and proteosome inhibitor like VDT. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about induction therapy, this is, if this is either transplant eligible or someone who may not be getting a transplant the same, and then how many cycles are you saying is typically used for induction therapy? So um, um, in general, uh, we divide patients into uh, transplant candidates and non-transplant candidates, and it, that's how um, is uh, across the world. Um, probably less so in the United States, which is our audience. Um, um, I uh, uh, don't really see a dramatic difference in selecting the regimen um, uh, for transplant candidates versus non-transplant candidates, and. Uh, KRD and VRD would still be my top choices, uh, with exception of maybe frail patients. Um, so that's very general um, uh, comment. Um, there is uh, uh, no question that um, uh, data for uh, transplant as part of initial strategy, um, which has been generated in late 90s, is still very strong. And in fact, last year brought number of uh, important uh, developments uh, further supporting transplant as, as initial strategy. Um, there was uh, a presentation at last ASH uh, in which um, French investigators uh, showed that RVD with transplant produced longer emissions than RVD without transplant in only transplant candidates. Um, and that was done with um, uh, relatively short course of RVD, uh, with transplant five cycles without transplant eight. But equivalency uh, of uh, exposure to treatment was comparable and transplant group one. So in a way, it showed uh, to uh, many of us uh, that in novel era with even as powerful regimen as RVD, transplant seems to be adding additional value and achieving longer emissions. There was no difference in survival between those two groups at the time when it was presented, but at least we have seen um, uh, longer emissions, which I think for every patient is important. Mm -hmm. So, so maybe how me... uh, to maybe answer uh, your uh, uh, important other question very quickly, how long to treat uh, for those who go on transplant? Um, 
I um, uh, typically would use three to four um, cycles, and that's what most of us would use. It's a balancing um, uh, to achieve good remissions. We know the deeper the response before the transplant, the better ultimately outcome. Uh, and to limit toxicities from induction, which may potentially carry over into our strategy uh, in post-transplant setting. So that's for transplant group. And in this particular French study, there was induction with three cycles. Most of us probably prefer four cycles. And depending what we use, uh, that um, uh, may potentially impact of what we do uh, later and for how long. Uh, and I want to comment because your question also included how long treat altogether uh, in transplant candidates. The field is completely um, uh, in, in, in evolving stage, I would say. Uh, most um, uh, studies and centers will use induction for four cycles, then transplant, and then maintenance with single agent. Most popular in the United States is uh, lenalidomide revlimid. Uh, however, a uh, number of studies, including our KRD with transplant studies, seem to be indicating that uh, extended treatment, even in transplant patients, including post-transplant period, is important. But I'm using this comment uh, supported by data from non-transplant patients. Um, there was two years ago at ASH an important now published um, effort uh, by, again, French investigators, which showed that uh, uh, Revlimid DEX or lenalidomide DEX uh, used for not short period, 18 months, and then every patient stopped treatment uh, versus extended treatment until progression. Uh, showed no difference until 18 months, but uh, at the time when uh, those uh, patients who were in the group of 18-month treatment stopped treatment, uh, their uh, duration of response uh, dramatically short, uh, dropped uh, and was much shorter compared to those who continued on RD, providing as a proof of principle, which I think is an important phrase to use, that uh, at least in the context of this regimen, extended treatment until progression is better than shorter treatment. Survival benefit was marginal only for this group, but it was emerging, and I think uh, uh, that was be could be an argument to be made to not necessarily continue that extended treatment. But on the other hand, uh, there was such a dramatic and statistically significant difference in remission that many of us adopted extended treatment as a new principle of therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so we, at this point, I yeah, summarize. Really, yeah. Try to use as good regimen as possible, treat drug regimens, and plan for extended treatment with or without transplant. That would be my summary of this segment of my uh, commentary about initial treatment. Mm -hmm. And then, so let me see if I can summarize for patients who might not be really up to date on the different things. So you, you're saying typically induction therapy was Revlimid, Velcade, Dex, and now you've uh, used Kyprolis um, Revlimid Dex, and you're finding that to be more powerful. So the RVD, if you have Revlimid Velcade Dex, and if you have um, neuropathy issues, you know that, that may not be something that you want to do. But if you have cardiovascular issues, heart conditions, or things like that, you may want to exercise caution using the Kyprolis Revlimid Dex. So you take that all into balance when you consider using your induction therapy. And then you are saying that transplant is still critical for patients, 
and you give three to four cycles of induction and then either go to transplant or if they're tr not, not eligible for transplant and you keep that going. And then you've learned over time that um, maintenance therapy until progression is probably a good idea. Is that an accurate summary? Yes. Yeah, and um, if maybe I overheard uh, or incorrectly registered. Uh, those with cardiovascular concern should not use Kyprolis, and those with neuropathy should not use Bortezomib, just to make sure. Yes, yeah. and, and it, it is something of importance uh, to stress. Um, I want to say why uh, I use uh, more powerful in the quotation marks um, KRD as my preferred regimen um, uh, uh, versus RVD, which is outstanding regimen and potentially other alternative choices despite some risks. Okay. Uh, I think uh, because of um, uh, increased sensitivity of disease in initial phase of therapy, uh, we are observing with KRD, especially with KRD and transplant, um, high, uh, in fact, never really seen before, even uh, with any other uh, strategies, rates of uh, elimination disease to not detectability. Uh, it is called complete response uh, by our um, traditional criteria, no evidence of any measurable myeloma protein on urine and serum and normalization of free light. That is achieved now with this uh, treatment strategy in over 50% of patients without transplant and based on RAST updates in over 70% of patients with transplant um, uh, in KRD, which um, are um, really um, uh, giving us sense that we are making breakthrough uh, progress uh, by using this strategy and potentially justifying some uh, risks related to this approach. Um, in addition to this traditional uh, uh, measure of elimination of disease by um, uh, naming it complete response, we have measured in most of our patients' uh, status of MRD or minimal residual disease using two methods, flow. Um, we are now using um, very much close to Spanish technique with uh, very high sensitivity for flow in our center, and as well as uh, next gene sequencing method, um, uh, which was previously done by Sequenta, now by Adaptive, um, and that is more sensitive based on uh, the reports. Um, and uh, these um, uh, patients who are treated with this strategy achieve ultimately um, uh, close to uh, 60 and more as last update, and we will present it again at ASH in a couple of months, um, MRD negative disease with stringent complete response and uh, negative imaging studies. So um, imagine um, uh, how um, uh, great achievement it is as um, uh, for these patients, they and I and patients uh, who are treated by either physician can potentially uh, open the, the door to hope that uh, maybe potentially in some of us or some of these patients disease was permanently eliminated. So, so I'm, I'm, all, I'm arguing that that strategy um, is um, a, a step uh, towards uh, finding a cure to myeloma. And of course, we need to wait longer and validate this data and bigger studies, but I think it is 
emerging as uh, as potentially hitting in this direction. So to summarize mm -hmm. why I have that this comment about the KRD and its, the, the results, I think that if we are having disease which is traditionally considered non-curable, uh, that's how it is written in all books and how we should probably still approach it because we don't have really evidence of curability. But if we know uh, that proportion of patients in those prior studies which have achieved those uh, good responses have achieved uh, uh, permanent elimination of uh, disease incompatible with cure, um, if we um, then correlate that cure was associated with achieving complete response in a minimal residual disease, increasing proportion of patients with this uh, outcome in the initial phase of therapy increases probability that a larger number of uh, patients achieving this goal may potentially be uh, achieving elimination of the disease. And we all uh, see those patients in our follow-ups uh, um, in multiple publications, you see uh, that these patients uh, are uh, truly eventually um, uh, achieve, achieving such a good responses and a durable ultimate response. Mm -hmm. So what I hear you saying is that because of the results that you're seeing using this different combination as upfront therapy and how deeply it's kicking the disease, you are very hopeful that it's um, that it's you know, the better, and what you're saying is the better you do up front, the better you're going to do overall typically. Maybe you could um, stop for a minute and explain a little bit about minimal residual disease testing because I've seen graphics where it's like an iceberg. And so you see the myeloma on the top of the iceberg and that testing to date kind of brought it down to can you get very good partial response or are you getting complete response, which means like you're not showing an M spike and it's not showing up on your immunoelectrophoresis test. But then minimal residual disease is even deeper, and you mentioned that you can do it by flow cytometry or next-generation sequencing. Um, can you elaborate on the, um, the importance of the deeper testing and finding you know, fewer myeloma cells in this minimal residual disease testing compared to someone that, who says, well, I have a stringent complete response or a complete response. Um, and then one other question that I had is, when are you doing that MRD testing? Is that after induction? Is that after the transplant? When are you seeing those great results? Because those are fabulous results. Um, this is a very important question. I think, um, again, evolving story and evolving um, sense of uh, understanding it as well as we can. Let me tackle it and um, maybe putting as, um, uh, as a backdrop um, uh, information that not uh, that long ago in mid-2000 decade, we had, uh, in most strategies, not more than 5% of patients achieving complete response. Um, uh, that has increased to about 30% uh, uh, in majority of the currently used strategies, and I mentioned the levels which we are seeing in KRD with or without transplant. Uh, that brought uh, uh, absolute need to trying to see 
uh, that uh, what uh, whether there is any difference between uh, one patient with CR and another patient with CR, and we know that achieving complete response or CR uh, is not a guarantee of elimination of the disease. That the disease is uh, possibly going to relapse even from complete response. So how to how to uh, maybe detect better uh, um, any residual disease and assess better what we have accomplished led to research on evaluating um, whatever is left uh, by more sensitive methods, uh, which are um, now um, becoming essentially standard of care. Uh, and these are, as you mentioned, flow-based uh, minimal residual disease evaluation, which was developed by Spanish investigators and based on gene sequencing methodology uh, developed here in the United States. Um, what these methods are doing uh, is by um, uh, aspirating the bone marrow, uh, they are able to detect abnormal clone uh, of malignant cells in uh, by flow technique, uh, one to 100,000 cells. In other words, if we aspirate uh, bone marrow and uh, one in 100,000 cells uh, is, cell is malignant, that would uh, indicate that there is still some residual disease, even if uh, immunofixation and protein electrophoresis does not show any product of this cell and there is no M-spike. Uh, that's why it was uh, found to be helpful because we noted that uh, if we apply this technique, we can pick up patients who are seemingly in complete response but still have some residual disease. Uh, the concern was uh, that this is not good enough, and that's why efforts have been taken and are still in progress to go deeper, and at least uh, by theory and by some data, next gene sequencing methodology um, seems to be uh, have sensitivity of picking up one in million cells, uh, which is positive for a malignant phenotype. And that uh, is eventually uh, our uh, current threshold. Uh, but you mentioned iceberg. Um, the iceberg um, uh, slide, which has been shown by many of us, I show it on my in my talk. Mm -hmm. I like that it, slide. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's showing in a very kind of a easy to comprehend way what we are talking about. And uh, top of uh, top of the iceberg, what we see over the over over the water is maybe what we shave off when we achieve disease to. And uh, absence of any monoclonal spike in urine and serum. Uh, uh, but we know that if we apply immunofixation technique, uh, then we pick up some uh, uh, spikes which have not been seen without that technique. So that goes under the water first layer. And then when we go with the flow technique, we can go even lower under the water, but there is still part of the iceberg which we are not seeing despite the flow technique being better. And then we think that when we go with gene sequencing, we can go even lower. And do we know whether we go to the bottom or not? Uh, we don't, but I think that that's the effort which we need to make. And I would uh, maybe link it back to my earlier comment. I am among those uh, in treating myeloma and myeloma researchers who believe that we are uh, at the doorsteps of cure, finding the cure for some patients with myeloma, I hope for majority of myeloma patients. 
And I think that we need to refine and make this technique as good as possible that we can use this technique with highest sensitivity level to eventually be able uh, to say that uh, there is no uh, detectable disease and there is a number of studies uh, which have done this technique and are following the patients now for many years from that point on. And we may be able to say in two or three years from now um, uh, that if patients achieve this level of response and meet some other characteristics, like for example, negative CTPAT along this uh, 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 finding with MRD negativity, sustain MRD for a certain period of time, that these patients may achieve um, uh, an ultimate um, goal uh, compatible with curing the disease. And maybe we can advise some of these patients in the near future, which we are not ready yet, uh, to stop uh, extended treatment and stop uh, maintenance therapy. So that's important effort uh, from that perspective, from ultimate uh, perspective, finding the cure. But MRD also has absolutely critical value prognostically. If it's applied in a systemic way, it may, based on the studies which have already been done or are in progress, uh, help us early in the course of the treatment on clinical trial make prediction what will be progression-free survival, all this median time to progression for average patient treatment with this strategy, uh, based on MRD at, uh, instead of waiting five or six or seven years as, as it is nowadays uh, at one or two year uh, landmark. For that reason, in my uh, place to answer your question, we measure MRD at the time when patient achieves CR, but also at landmark time point, at the end of induction, at the end of transplant, at the end of consolidation post-transplant, and then yearly. So you're doing it multiple times, and because you're looking at that as a really primary indicator. So let me ask you some follow-up questions about that. And you kind of mentioned it already, but um, what you're saying is this could dramatically shift the way you run clinical trials. Because right now in clinical trials, just in from me talking to different investigators and, and looking up clinical trials a lot um, for my loma patients, it seems like right now you're looking at either progression-free survival or how long did it take them to progress or overall survival. And with the better drugs, that, that could be a long time, right? So you're trying to create these studies around these certain endpoints. And what you're saying is you might be able to use minimal residual disease testing now that it's such a sensitive test as maybe a different endpoint for your clinical trial to say, okay, we're going to look at these patients to see who achieved that and what time and then, then that gives us an indication of how they'll progress and how long they'll live. Is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely correct and absolutely important uh, point to make to ourselves uh, and to those who approve uh, clinical trials, including um, FDA. It's a it's work in progress. I uh, know that uh, many of us uh, uh, have uh, work on that uh, endpoint uh, being now uh, considered as valid endpoint. Uh, uh, FDA and, and those who have critical uh, look at what we have achieved so far um, is um, giving us feedback at this point that um, we still have rather limited data on correlation between MRD and outcome. 
I think this data is already emerging uh, to the level that uh, I am very optimistic, in fact, that uh, one of the next uh, studies which are on a drawing board right now or being discussed with FDA will use MRD as at least a co-primary endpoint, which may need to be validated, which is understood uh, by progression pre survival later on uh, to validate that this was, in fact, what we um, uh, were planning to accomplish um, and will be used as surrogate endpoint. Uh, I can translate it in a more kind of a easily understood uh, uh, concept. If at the end of two years, one study gives, uh, uh, say, 80% of uh, uh, patients uh, stringent complete response and MRD negative uh, status, um, and another uh, study or treatment uh, in different arm gives, uh, say, 60% or 50%, um, that's only a response rate at this point, and we know that from both groups, patients might be still relapsing. But we can connect those two values with historical data, how patients achieving that level of response have done over time, and mm -hmm. we can plot statistically what the curve of progression free survival will look for those two groups, and we can propose to regulators, to those who approve those studies, this is very solid data which can predict with this and this probability, and it is high probability nowadays, uh, outcome at three or four years. We can use it now. We will, of course, uh, continue to follow these patients to making sure that this assumption is um, confirmed in an uh, ultimate outcome. Um, that's an extremely important uh, effort which we are making right now. Well, that means that makes sense, um, that you could really speed things up that way. So an, another question, so now that minimal residual disease testing is out, and that's what the company called adaptive, so if patients haven't had that, they can ask their doctor about getting that test, but how many patients would you guess um, or percentage of patients are using this MRD test? And then another question, can you have low minimal residual disease and then never end up progressing? What have you seen now that you've been doing this MRD test for a while? Um, I will answer uh, maybe in two uh, steps. And number one, uh, it depends on which center. In my center, every patient has MRD evaluation, and if uh, they are on clinical trial or on standard of care, uh, we are approaching patients who are not on clinical trial in a very similar way. Um, uh, there is uh, the, the test is clear approved. Uh, there is uh, potentially in different institution availability of this test. Um, I'm not going to go into technicalities. Uh, it's still not completely uh, reimbursed and approved, and I think that there there could be a potentially a reimbursement issue if, uh, if hospital um, does not have a mechanism of um, agreement with adaptive or insurance companies will not accept it. Again, it is at the moment probably uh, not as big of uh, an issue in uh, my understanding how adaptive is handling those um, tests, but I think that uh, that would be my quick summary where we are with this test. Um, Flow-based MRD is uh, done for all our patients 
and uh, without uh, any concerns for reimbursement. And that, that's very important information. It's very close in sensitivity to what adaptive uh, technique does. So I think that, that between those two tests, we have more information. So that's first part. Mm -hmm. uh, the second uh, part of the question is extremely important, and I will link it to what I had discussed earlier. Um, so achieving MRD disease has prognostic value, can potentially predict elimination of the disease status if we find that uh, uh, sustainability of MRD for a certain period of time can be linked to that outcome. Uh, so that's one part, but I want to stress to all the patients who are craving or have heard about MRD and are unable to get to MRD uh, negative status that um, uh, elimination disease to MRD negativity is statistically predicting better outcome, but for a given patient, uh, still, residual disease does not mean uh, ultimately bad outcome. Uh, there is an increased probability of relapsing earlier with MRD-positive status than without, but I have uh, a lot of my patients whom I treated earlier in Michigan who continue to follow up with me, so they are 14, 15 years later who never achieved complete response and MRD-negative status. They may, may have received a few lines of therapy, but their uh, their survival is outstanding, and their outcome is uh, probably as good as those patients who have stopped treatment in MRD negative status. But so that's that's important distinction which you made by my asking and framing this question. It, it is uh, good to have MRD negative status for our studies to have, because we know that it can serve as a surrogate endpoint as we discussed, and maybe potentially gave us guidance how to uh, get to curing um, the disease. But I, I think uh, that should not be ultimately a guide yet uh, to um, to achieving it in patients uh, who, despite best efforts, are not in MRD negative status. Their outcome can still uh, possibly be uh, quite good. Mm -hmm. And I've heard some doctors say it might kick you back to, you still might have MRD positive, but I might be in like an MGUS-like state. It, is that true? Can you address that at all? Is that, yeah, how, do you concept, how do you differentiate it? Uh -huh. Yeah, it's a concept which uh, many of us have um, uh, discussed exactly how you put it. Uh, uh, this M spike 0.1 or 0.2 uh, may be, um, uh, you know, uh, distressing uh, patients and doctors because it's still evidence of residual disease, especially if it's original M-spike. But uh, it, this may behave not like residual myeloma, but like MGAS, which we know may for years not progress. And I have, again, with my years of uh, working with myeloma patients, uh, quite good number of patients having that MGAS-like behavior with or without maintenance never really moving up uh, and staying at this 0.1.2 and uh, behaving like MGAS. Uh, that's true. So, again, um, individual patient um, uh, at this time, um, we don't have uh, data to really uh, change our approach based on MRD status. I am actually treating both groups of patients uh, in a very similar way for extended time. It may change, but at the moment, that's how it is. Uh, and that's, uh, that's one part of uh, my uh, comment. And the second uh, part is that 
not achieving MRD negative status does not necessarily mean um, that this patient may not uh, fare quite well and may not even require another round of treatment uh, for the rest of his or her life. Mm -hmm. So you can still have MRD positive status and be hopeful that you can right. have good Absolutely. access. So before we move on to relapse, um, what to do at relapse, because I do want to cover that just briefly. Um, you mentioned that um, the two different inductions that have been compared and when you look at standard risk versus high risk, do you see any difference when you look at the high risk genetic features or high risk types of myeloma? And then um, for high risk patients, do you change um, your number of cycles at all, like to shorten that up to get them to transplant faster? I, those are two totally separate topics, so sorry I joined those questions together. But. Um. It's an important uh, topic and potentially controversial. So as everything what I say today, and it's, it's my opinion and my commentary and what I know about, the, uh, about this subject, high-risk disease is present in approximately 15 to 20% of patients using uh, maybe most sensitive and most consistently recognized in this subgroup of patients um, uh, disease. Um, uh, so. Um, so what 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 this means um, uh, in until recently, a um, uh, number of uh, investigators and algorithms of treatment have uh, proposed the following approach: that patients who have uh, low risk or standard risk disease um, uh, could be treated less aggressively, as their disease tends to uh, behave. Uh, um, not uh, uh, having quick uh, or early relapses and staying longer in remission, and saving uh, uh, that particular hello. Yep. Uh huh. We're here. Uh, and saving uh, better drugs or better regimens for later. That has been part of the um, uh, recommendations, for example, from MSmart um, uh, algorithm and some others. Uh, many uh, at that time would uh, reserve those more aggressive regimens like RVD and now KRD only for higher risk patients or preferentially for risk patients. Um, and that's something which I uh, think um, is uh, changing now. Uh, first, um, we have uh, seen uh, that there is indeed difference in outcome between good risk or standard risk patients and high-risk patients in the context of any therapy. I cannot really discuss uh, results yet, but we will present uh, KRD um, uh, in newly diagnosed patients based on uh, risk factors at this ASH meeting. Um, uh, but in short, all prior studies seem to be indicating that uh, regardless how powerful regimen we will use, uh, uh, if you separate patients with high risk for a given regimen, uh, their outcome will be uh, somehow inferior to those who are good risk disease. Um, so that, that, that uh, evolved into next step of um, uh, data, next step of approaching um, uh, now patients in the current status of uh, art in myeloma, that we uh, have realized that high-risk patients uh, indeed uh, need better regimens because with uh, less aggressive regimens, their uh, outcome has been 
uh, truly highly inferior. They do need uh, better regimens for high risk for sure. So no question about that. High risk patients, as good regimen that you can have to treat them. But what we've learned that good risk patients benefit at least equally from more aggressive regimens and as high risk patients, the difference between those groups remains, but both uh, high risk and, and low risk patients benefit from better strategies. It has been shown in relapse uh, setting in a SPIRE trial, uh, which was KRD versus RD, uh, there was a superior outcome for KRD in this regimen in relapse setting, but when they did subset analysis based on risk, they noted that benefit of about 10 plus months was seen for more or less the same uh, amount of months improvement uh, in high risk and low risk patients, which provided as a proof of principle uh, argument that we should be uh, treating uh, also good risk patients in more aggressive way because they can benefit more. Mm. I illustrate this with the patients who have good risk uh, and potentially are uh, exploring what to do. Um, if I were the patient and I would be told that with high-risk strategy, my life expectancy would be 10 years um, uh, with the uh, 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 more aggressive strategy and say seven years with less aggressive strategy based on all data, I would be interested in extending yeah. uh, my life by three years. Uh, and it's probably I'm using those numbers just to illustrate my point. I, I think we, in fact, probably relatively increase uh, life expectancy more for high-risk patients, uh, for low-risk patients than for high-risk patients. Uh, that, that, that improvement is more even visible. So in mm -hmm. short, to answer your question, um, I think that we still don't have um, uh, the best strategy for high-risk patients, but we all agree that whatever we think is at the moment the best we should use for high-risk patients. But most of us also agreed that if there are no contraindications for more active regimens, also good-risk patients should uh, achieve that better strategy, and that's how I approach it in my center. Mm -hmm. That's great. Now, you talked to, when you were talking about minimal residual disease testing, you also had a clinical trial that I wanted to have you mention. So you're using um, exazomib, lenalidomide, and DEX versus lenalidomide alone. Do you want to tell us what that trial is, um, what the purpose of that trial is? Yes. Um, uh, so um, just brief background. We generally treat enrolled patients when they are newly diagnosed or if they relapse. This trial is a novel trial in a way because we are enrolling into this trial patients who completed transplant. Uh, eligibility is presence of minimal residual disease. And then patients are randomized to what is considered uh, a standard of care or most common choice, which is Revlimid alone maintenance uh, for one group of patients with this minimal residual disease and another group of patients receive uh, Ixazomib uh, Revlimid Dex. Ixazomib is oral agent, convenient for maintenance therapy, uh, therefore, uh, similar to Bortezomib, which is now approved as Ninlaro, and has shown um, uh, activity in both relapse and frontline setting, with a randomized study showing superiority of, uh, we call in short this regimen IRD for Ixazomib RD, 
versus RD, uh, looking at uh, progression-free survival with modest uh, improvement of that um, uh, benchmark. In newly diagnosed patients, uh, the regimen has been shown uh, also very active. It can be potentially considered in newly diagnosed patients uh, based on two studies with two different schedules with randomized study comparing to RD in progress. So that's why we use IRD um, uh, because it does produce uh, um, uh, good responses and extended responses for this trial. It's convenient because it's all oral. It's proven to be active. It's proven to be well tolerated. There was no major difference in toxicity between those two arms. So in a way, it was uh, uh, by um, proposing it to the patients who normally uh, are craving for having convenience, uh, very good uh, approach, all oral, and not um, uh, at least based on the data which we have um, increasing risks. And what we are looking for uh, at uh, this study is to see whether at the end of one year of treatment with either IRD or uh, R, uh, there will be a difference in MRD negative disease we anticipate that even our patients will have some conversions to, M to negative status. This could be effect of reflamid or ongoing effect of transplant. And we anticipate that IRD group will have more of this MRD negative patients at the end of 12 months. That is a pilot phase two randomized study, which will give us some new uh, information whether that strategy actually is valid and is important and it will provide us with some guidance uh, for potentially intensifying treatment uh, for those who have MRD negative status, uh, MRD positive status, mm -hmm. uh, if we find that this could be beneficial. So right now, earlier discussions which I had with you was, we really don't know what to do with these patients. We should be hopeful because many of them will do well. That study will give us, based on design of the study, information whether this um, uh, search for elimination of the disease using this particular strategy will be beneficial. And we, of course, will look at progression for survival down the road and some other endpoints. Mm -hmm. And what I hear you saying overall throughout the show is that your goal is to um, kind of front load all these different treatments potentially. And that's what this trial is, is like after transplant, then what else can we do to prevent relapse? And we'll talk about relapse briefly in a second, but um, that's kind of what I hear you saying is let's get the most effective drugs up front. Let's still keep the transplant because it's still showing to be more effective and deeper response. And then after we finish, let's continue with even a triple therapy instead of just maybe one. So that with the goal of preventing relapse because the, the myeloma is the most sensitive at the be beginning of it, the disease. Right. Uh, the argument can be made if you use all of the good drugs at the beginning, you may be left out with nothing to use. Um, and that is a valid argument. Uh, I challenge this argument and I I use always uh, example when I was uh, having difficulty getting patients on thalidomide-based triplets um, uh, 10 years ago, uh, an argument was made, um, well, why don't we use thalidomide later, and at the moment, let's start with VAD and and, and see what happens. Uh, you know, uh, patients which I treated more aggressively have been in remission for six, seven, eight years, and even if they relapse, uh, 
uh, time of thalidomide passed, and we have many more choices right now. And I was right. use thalidomide, and uh, and I uh, I think that race for uh, finding new drug uh, is generally helpful because we're getting new and new drugs. And we've been absolutely super fortunate in last years that we keep getting new and promising drugs. As you know, four drugs approved in 2015, and some of them extremely promising. Uh, we talked already about Inlaro. Uh, we didn't talk about Dilotuzumab, uh, anti-CS1 antibody based on eloquent data, um, uh, Panabinostat earlier. And uh, I think what excites uh, many of us uh, probably most is anti-CD38 antibody daratumumab or Darzalex, which uh, is a game changer in a way. So I think that we didn't talk about this in the frontline setting. I'm sure it will come to frontline setting, but in the relapse setting, we are achieving remissions uh, like in uh, combination with RD and Pollux trial uh, approaching 40 to 50 months. And I would like to um, give a, as a backdrop information that in most of the uh, studies which have matured enough, the median time to progression in newly diagnosed patient has been between two and three years. So we are now in relapse setting achieving um, four to uh, five, even six years remissions by just having new agents. So I. I would say, That's okay, uh, you know, uh, we may be uh, uh, not necessarily having superb um, uh, group of choices if disease relapses early, but for the most part, let's push uh, the field, let's uh, make sure that progress is made, and if I uh, am unfortunate to relapse uh, seven years later, who knows what's going to be happening in seven years later. Let's get to seven years and then uh, worry about that later. Right. That's fantastic. Well, in the last few minutes, I want to just leave it up to you. Um, we have, you have many open clinical trials that you could talk about. And we could also talk about what patients should do at relapse, because that's kind of what I talk to patients about that we would cover in the show. So I want to make sure you address it a little bit. Um, when patients relapse, uh, what do you suggest? Um, and then which clinical trials would you like to share with us? that are the most interesting for you? Um, so depends on when the relapse happens, and we always look at prior history, uh, how quickly relapse happen, and how aggressive is the relapse, is there high-risk uh, disease or extramedular disease. These are directing us in variety of um, uh, choices. Uh, we are fortunate to have a lot of choices, uh, but in general, uh, we can always try uh, original regimen in, at relapse uh, if it works and, uh, and uh, had sustained remission for extended period of time. Um, I generally uh, apply a rule of uh, making uh, um, two changes uh, versus what has been the most uh, recent therapy. For example, somebody progressing on uh, revlimid maintenance, the first uh, relapse, um, we have number of choices, uh, uh, and as you know, number of triplets have been approved. But uh, for example, in my center, our priority um, regimen is for these patients who, especially who had already had previously proteosome inhibitor, uh, to uh, make potentially a change to uh, more effective proteosome inhibitor like Kyprolis and its combination at the minimum is dexamethasone or maybe with uh, pomalis, and that's one of our studies which is evaluating activity of 
Kyprolis um, uh, pomalis and dexamethasone. We presented it at ASCO, and it's still ongoing study, which is uh, still to be published. But it, it has very powerful uh, effect uh, nowadays with Darzalex, uh, not yet approved for more than a um, uh, single agent, but with some insurers already accepting it, uh, reasonable alternatives will be uh, daratumumab-based combination with, uh, for example, with RD, if there was no refractory status to uh, Revlimid and dexamethasone, or with uh, uh, proteosome inhibitors, as we had data with Velkidex. Uh, other combinations are coming anytime. So I think that that what will be potentially first, second, third relapse, uh, uh, which I will be using, and and mm -hmm. triplets in general work better than uh, than doublets in this type of setting. Uh, we have one uh, very powerful doublet, Kyprosdex, um, which was superior to Veldex in the Endeavor trial. But whenever we can, probably triplets will give us uh, more um, efficacy and longer remission. That's how I eventually approach. And then every step uh, uh, the disease needs retreatment is becoming more uh, complicated and more sophisticated, always uh, requiring review of uh, prior uh, treatment strategy. That's why I use clinical trials. And what we use here, uh, for example, one study which I would like to bring to, bring to people's attention, which we have in, um, in multiple sites, including the University of Chicago, is combination of Kyprolis dexamethasone with Selenexor, a new uh, class of agent, uh, which is used in our study in those patients who are progressing on the Kyprolis combination. And most of these patients have exhausted all possible combinations before. And what we found, and we presented it at um, uh, prior meetings, and we will have oral session from updated results at this ASH, is that majority of patients progressing on Kyprolis combination will, res will respond to this combination because Selenexor was found to be able to overcome resistance to Kyprolis in preclinical and now in clinical setting. So this is an example. A number of other studies in our center in include newer agents like venitoclax, uh, new antibody with toxin from Abvi, which we have. Um, we are also moving toward CAR-Ts. And these are uh, stra strategies which are in our disposal. Mm -hmm. And then you also have an elotuzumab lenalidomide dexamethasone study for high-risk smoldering, right? Right, and it is um, uh, one of the important efforts, uh, which is led by Dr. Gabriel from Dana-Farber. We joined that effort. Uh, it is um, uh, an approach which comes from two uh, observations. Number one, which I mentioned, the earlier the disease, the more sensitive to treatment it is. And number two, mm -hmm. eloquent study showed that uh, RD and uh, elotuzumab is superior than RD. And, and, and the next observation, which was the basis and rationale for this study, a uh, Spanish investigator published the results of their study in smoldering myeloma high risk, in which they showed that patients treated uh, in this stage uh, of disease with revlimid dex had superior uh, uh, control of the disease, but also superior survival compared to those who were observed. Uh, this was a placebo-controlled study, which we won't do anymore, but uh, that information is available. So we are building up on this Spanish uh, information and study and kind of escalating 
uh, intensity of smoldering myeloma uh, as a target of uh, more effect effective therapy. Uh, and I have to say that this is a first step in the direction which I'm hearing and seeing a lot around. Uh, there is a study being uh, in development with, in fact, KRD, with or without transplant, in high-risk uh, smoldering myeloma, uh, which uh, uh, we're likely to participate as well, um, which comes with this concept, okay, this is good regimen and work well in newly diagnosed myeloma. Dr. Landgren showed the data, uh, outstanding result, in, in fact, in smoldering subsets of his KRD-treated patients. Uh, so good probability that we can achieve even better results with very aggressive therapy uh, in this uh, segment of the disease. But it has to be an, an important caution, which I want to make, done in the context of clinical trial, because there is uh, a potential that many of these patients may not need therapy for years to come. And we don't want to be an, entering into this haphazardly without any evidence that this is, in fact, better strategy than wait and watch. That sounded great for um, KRD and smoldering myeloma, and it's exciting to know that there's more progress being made right now in both newly diagnosed myeloma and earlier stages. I think it's really, really exciting. We talked a little bit earlier in the show about uh, relapse, and I just wonder, from a patient perspective, how can patients be best prepared to consider their options, either when they're newly diagnosed and everything is so new and different to them, or at relapse because they need to make decisions quickly? Um, as an expert in myeloma, what, what is your opinion about that? Well, um, I think um, they need to, uh, first of all, have a physician with expertise in the field at um, a level which potentially gives uh, them and anybody sense that this physician can navigate very difficult uh, decision-making process and guide the patient. Um, most of oncologists are very qualified to make those decisions, but uh, uh, no question some uh, advantages of working with um, key um, uh, myeloma specialists in uh, key centers like uh, Mayo or Memorial or our center. Uh, these are um, uh, physicians who are not only qualified, but absolutely 100% focused on myeloma. So. Uh, with that uh, in mind, they may potentially be having the newest information, maybe even a very promising clinical trial with treatment which is not available as a standard of care. At uh, the minimum, uh, they may potentially provide a good uh, second opinion reinforcing the plan uh, implemented by primary oncologists uh, or maybe potentially providing additional guidance. Uh, that can be usually arranged with most of us uh, very quickly. Uh, if we hear something like that, we do, as uh, on our place, I, I can see patients next day within a week for sure, and others uh, in my group uh, can help, um, and that is typical for other places as well. I think that's, uh, that's important. It is a very difficult uh, moment. I agree with that, and that's why I think getting this extra opinion is, is, is important. Um, if they overdo it, on the other hand, um, uh, that may potentially be creating a lot of um, uncertainty what to do because, unfortunately, at any crossroad, even key opinion leaders may not always 100% agree, and that may be potentially more complicated. But if that comes to this point uh, between two or three 
then then the patient is uh, usually very well advised. Uh, I, that's my experience by listening to not only what is on the paper for any physician who is talking to them, but um, whether they uh, feel that they have somebody whom they can really fully trust in their opinion and their way of presenting what needs to be done and, and then uh, go with that uh, either directly under care of this physician or uh, having him or her involved in, in, in decision-making process. Mm -hmm. And my final question, I think, and then I had one write-in question that I'd like to ask is um, you talked earlier also about uh, later relapse. You know, you said, well, it kind of depends on the type of relapse and how long it's been and things like that. So you hear about patients who relapse multiple times and then they add a different combination and they're still alive. You know, I have friends that are still alive 17, 20 years later, which is incredibly amazing and wonderful. But, um, and then I have other friends who struggle with it and they're aggressive, their myeloma is more aggressive. But how do you differentiate as a clinician and researcher to know which strategy at which point in time? And maybe the MRD testing that you talked about earlier will give us some clues. Well, um, it, uh, uh, we didn't talk much about it, but uh, disease is heterogeneous. So this, uh, there is uh, at least uh, good to understand uh, the two major categories, good risk versus high-risk uh, features, and if high-risks are, in fact, are supported by course of the disease until that point, uh, and that typically is associated with short-lasting responses and uh, difficulty achieving uh, MRD negative status, uh, with even best therapies uh, and um, uh, recurrent pattern of relapses. These patients are uh, in the highest needs to providing them with uh, best possible next option and potentially um, on the highest uh, list of the things which should be considered for this patient will be a new agent either recently approved of those which can potentially work in this high-risk uh, setting or a new approaches using clinical trials. Uh, and the patient you mentioned, 17 uh, plus, and, and, and there's a lot of them like that, um, even with multiple relapses, but each uh, after four, five, six years or something like that, uh, their um, um, uh, options are generally um, um, bigger and uh, easier to uh, make. Um, uh, they are usually able to respond to prior therapies, so you can uh, make um, history uh, of treatment assessment and then pick up based on uh, those uh, prior histories and how uh, agents which have been used in the past worked um, and what uh, theoretically, at least based on this history, can work best, um, uh, pick up the next regimen. And, and I uh, have mentioned that earlier, I generally have a rule that I try to make at least uh, uh, one and uh, preferentially two changes versus the prior therapy, um, and, and, and I'm trying to uh, follow the rule that uh, multiple agents, uh, and in general, this is three for the time being, work better than, than two, uh, and, and, and uh, try to achieve as likely um, a high rate of uh, response and deep response as we can. Mm -hmm. There's unfortunately no guidance from uh, the biology of uh, sample, um, with few exceptions. There may be some emerging um, subsets of myeloma, which we may uh, treat preferentially with one or the other agents, but that's 
that's still work which we need to do as a researchers. Um, so we uh, very much empirically pick up uh, new regimens. Yeah. With all of the eight edit combinations which we have, uh, you can imagine that those type of patients almost certainly haven't tried any of the four newly um, approved drugs. So if the part of the treatment is one of the agents which is recently approved, that usually will work very well for them. That's terrific. Well, we're excited that there's so much more in the clinic. Uh, and, and I had a writing question, and then I'll let you summarize kind of what we talked about today. But um, Wendy asked, you know, there are a lot of clinical trials that do are doublets versus triplets. And like you mentioned earlier, uh, we're pretty much convinced that triplets are a better choice. So is there a better way of running those trials to test different combinations? Um, I'm, I'm sure there is. Um, it's a very complicated question. I very much appreciate um, uh, the person who sent it. Um, it is uh, uh, the, uh, those trials are um, very important for us to establish new uh, standards of care. Uh, they are designed at the time uh, of their design when we truly do not know uh, whether uh, tested triplet versus doublet uh, would work uh, better, and that's um, by any IRB committee required um, uh, test uh, point which we need to pass, uh, and the same at FDA level. Uh, so, so, so that that's in the background. But there is no question that hypothesis uh, before this trial is that a triplet will work better than doublet. And for the most part, that's what happened in the last uh, few years, maybe with exception of one or two studies where those differences were so small or uh, minimal that eventually ended up not really achieving any progress or mm -hmm. minimal, not significant clinically progress. How to better design the studies um, uh, to uh, make uh, some of these uh, advances? Um, I, I have uh, some uh, ideas. I think that... Um, I think we should be uh, um, looking at typical endpoints in those studies, um, um, like progression for survival and difference in toxicity in both arms of treatment um, and, and ultimately overall survival. But it, these time points uh, are usually distant. So as we discussed earlier, maybe putting surrogate endpoints early into the study uh, may potentially uh, limit the size of these studies and uh, uh, create the data which can be interpreted uh, uh, sooner with lesser cost. Mm -hmm. um, this is uh, um, to some extent also um, driven by um, uh, need for uh, uh, providing uh, evidence of uh, probability of uh, drug combination for a given indication, and, and these are uh, very hard and difficult uh, discussions which we uh, have uh, internally before we propose the studies to FDA or other regulatory agencies in Europe, uh, and uh, eventually uh, to our colleagues and to our uh, patients. Uh, I, I'm, I'm realizing that I'm not giving really answer how to make this better, but I think that um, with um, some efforts to not to allow certain studies which have obvious uh, written on the wall answer um, uh, would be uh, one thing I probably would 
uh, consider as a action point that may be difficult to implement, but that's something which I am not necessarily myself interested in in doing. And uh, and uh, and number two, uh, maybe limit those uh, um, uh, evaluations to uh, providing the uh, the uh, arm uh, of treatment. For example, three versus two in a way that prior historical data does not provide. Uh, and a high probability of success of one of these arms, um, uh, which may potentially be uh, really uh, important to consider at, at the start. But then, if we have this type of situation, uh, generally establishing those um, um, outcomes uh, based on statistical prediction, how many patients we need to enroll, may be more difficult and may require putting more more patients, so it's not easy uh, subject to uh, to tackle. Um, yeah. And I know that I'm not helping, but I think this is probably the best um, I can comment at this time. Well, that's complicated, is what you're saying, mm-hmm. um, because you have a lot of fact- factors to consider when you're right. asking certain yep. specific things. Is there something that you'd like to um, add, just in conclusion? We're so thankful that you're joining us today. Well, again, I want to thank you and. Uh, I will uh, thank you, uh, those who are listening, for uh, uh, staying until end and listening to me and my opinions. Uh, is a, it's a really great pleasure. I think that you could hear me throughout uh, uh, this uh, interview and my um, uh, comments that I am excited about where we are in myeloma. I, my excitement is uh, maybe very much uh, related to the fact that, in particularly, in newly diagnosed myeloma, we made tremendous progress um, achieving in uh, newly diagnosed myeloma requiring treatment and in smoldering myeloma, which has high risks uh, and is uh, now treated in some clinical trials, high level of success, elimination of the disease uh, to high rates never seen before, and uh, eventually uh, increasing hope that many of these patients may be cured as some of the data emerging from these studies um, seems to be uh, showing. I think this is the area where we need to make biggest efforts as uh, disease in this stage is uh, easiest uh, to achieve response and easiest to eliminate. And I think that the direction within the context of clinical trial to apply some of these best strategies even in uh, smoldering myeloma is something I very much like and and uh, like to see uh, continuing. We didn't talk much about it, but I think some of the agents which are currently in the relapse disease are ready to be moved and are in fact evaluated in newly diagnosed myeloma, like antibodies, ilotuzumab. We mentioned some of it uh, earlier, and I think that some of the more promising newer agents, which are at the moment uh, being evaluated in relapse disease can make a difference. And then eventually, I think, which we didn't talk much about it, but it is linked to your earlier question, in, uh, in the era where we know the disease is heterogeneous, we've got to figure out how to pick up, uh, say we talk about KRD and RVD or uh, CYBORD, one of these regimens based on biology of disease and certain characteristics um, rather than by our preference or our experiences or comparing against historical data. That needs to be done, and as well as targeting in more uh, difficult uh, aspect, precision medicine, some of the abnormalities which we are seeing in 
in in uh, in biology of disease and uh, in in patients' genotype of malignant cells. Uh, and both uh, of these efforts are in uh, in progress. Um, I'm proud to be part of uh, MMRF and MRC and other organizations are um, joining, including yours, um, uh, that we are um, tackling those issues in the context of clinical trial. And I'm sure that uh, in the next uh, even month and a half after ASH, we will be wiser and more educated about what to do. And Every meeting now uh, in this uh, era brings new information and brings new hope and, and further improvements, which I have no doubt will continue. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And we just appreciate all you're doing for myeloma patients, all you're doing to drive research forward, and we're just thrilled. So thank you for joining us today and taking time out of your very busy schedule, and we just wish you the best. Thank you so much, and very much appreciated um, uh, and being invited and speaking to all you, all of you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio. Join us for future shows to learn more about the latest in myeloma research and what it means. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.